Hey guys, welcome and thanks for joining me. I've got another fishbowl episode in store for you. And this one features the one and only Dr. Andy Rourke. Now, I say it several times throughout this episode, and I really truly mean it, that every time I get the opportunity to talk to Andy, I feel like whatever he has to say is somehow magically exactly what I need to hear. And recording this episode was like that experience amplified. We talk a lot about veterinary medicine as an identity and some of the pros and cons of having part of our identities wrapped up in vet med. And in reality, that might not be the healthiest thing to have your identity that wrapped up in vet med, but I mean, the truth is for a lot of us in this field, it can be a little bit of an inevitability which means when we experience changes in our career, it can create this sort of identity crisis and leave us struggling to find our way. Personally, I can relate to that experience very deeply, which I talk about a little bit on this episode. And honestly, Andy's probably one of the people who helped me through it the most. I reached out when I was having this identity crisis and he helped me see things a little bit more clearly and develop a healthier perspective on my career and part of my identity as a veterinarian. So I hope some of that messaging comes through in this episode to anybody out there who might be experiencing a similar struggle. Now, he probably needs no introduction, but Dr. Andy Rorick is a practicing veterinarian, international speaker, author, and media personality. He's the founder of the Uncharted Veterinary Conference and DrAndyRourke.com. He's been an award-winning columnist for DVM 360, and his popular Facebook page, website, podcast, and YouTube show reach millions of people every month. And on that note, if you haven't had a chance to check out the Uncharted podcast or one of my personal favorites, the Cone of Shame podcast, I highly recommend them for some fun listening on all kinds of challenges and fun in this crazy field we call vet med. Dr. Rourke has received the NAVC Practice Management Speaker of the Year Award three times, the WVC Practice Management Educator of the Year Award, the Outstanding Young Alumni Award from the University of Florida's College of Veterinary Medicine, and the Veterinarian of the Year Award from the South Carolina Association of Veterinarians. His greatest achievement, however, involves marrying a badass scientist and raising two kind and wonderful daughters. All right, let's go ahead and get into our talk. Well, thanks everybody for tuning in. I'm sitting here on the expo hall floor at VMX with the one and only Andy Rourke. So thank you for joining me. No, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I'm happy to have you and to bring to bring your messaging out, you know, to the audience. Not that not that you need any help with that, because <laughs> your messaging is far and wide and for a reason. You have so many good things to say. But well, I'm excited you. to sit down and talk to you and pick your brain a little bit. Yeah, sure. Far away. Whatever you whatever you want to talk about. I guess. We can start with a little bit of the backstory of, of how we got introduced was me reaching out through Facebook, yeah. wondering if I was still a real vet uh, yeah. because I was going through some career changes and taking on a less clinical role. And I was really struggling emotionally with that to go, am I, am I still a real vet or am, you know, yeah. am I, I don't know, am I a sellout? Like what am I, what's, what's happening here? And you and I had a great conversation and I felt so much better after our talk. So well, I'm wondering great. if we can bring a little bit of that to everybody listening. Yeah, sure. I do remember that email <laughs> and it sort of came in. But yeah, I think everybody has to find what works for them, right? It's kind of like, it's kind of like with therapy. We're sort of like, there's no right answer. It's, it's, what, it's the tools that you need to kind of process and, and feel good about sort of where you are. And so self-identity is a big part of it. I think self-identity is a big part of vet medicine, right? The way we see ourselves really matters. It's why vets get so mad when pet owners will say stuff like, like you're only in this for the money. And we say that because it's a challenge to our core identity and who we are as people. You know, we, and we know it's garbage. We know it's not true, but it's still like it's so much being giving and supporting and helpful and doing everything we can. And so much a part of how we see ourselves that when somebody says that and again, it doesn't hit everybody that way. But there's a lot of us who really react emotionally very strongly to it. But I think it's really because it hits that identity thing. And so there's very much a strong culture in vet medicine that I love. And you guys, you see, I was just talking to some technicians outside the booth and uh, they they work in industry now. But I, I knew who they were as soon as I saw them. I could, you can tell them the way they walk that they're technicians, like they're credentialed technicians. They've been in the trenches. Like you, you just talk to them for a minute and you know that they have seen some stuff and they've done some stuff. Like you just, they can't hide it. It's, it's baked into who they are. And so that's the type of culture that we have. It kind of permeates you as a person after a while. And so it makes a lot of sense that like as you go on in, in your career and you start to do other things, especially as a doctor, when you're not 
just in the exam rooms, putting hands on patients and fixing patients. At some point you start to say, what does this mean for my identity, right? What does it mean for who I am? And so there's this thing called cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance is this idea is the way if I'm not living a life that matches up with the ideal version of myself in my head, I don't like that, right? Like we want to believe that we're being the person that we want to be. And I see cognitive dissonance a lot in doctors that start to do other things, like whether it's moving to industry, whether it's to start doing other careers, whether it's just going part-time so they can spend more time with their family, whether it is moving up into management leadership roles, which is more and more common, right? As we have corporatization, we have a lot more uh, doctors that are getting bumped up to, to be a chief of staff at a, at a hospital, a medical director, something like that. And now we've got more and more doctors that, that are stronger leaders that are moving up into overseeing multiple hospitals. And these are roles that just didn't exist in the past. And so there's a lot of doctors moving up into those spots and they're really having an identity crisis in a lot of ways because they're like, man, I, 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 the ideal version of me is in the exam room, helping people, fixing pets, helping pet owners, making an impact there. I, I'm the person who, when my technicians say we're really behind, I can step in, I can fix things. I can't get this catheter in, you know, I can step in and, and do that, whatever. Um, I say that as a total joke because my technicians are never going to ask me to put a catheter in because they're <laughs> exponentially better than I am. But the idea is, as we're not doing those anymore, we have this, this weird thing of like, who am I and what am I? And, and if you hold yourself to the standard of I am great because I'm excellent in the exam room and clients like me and I get thank you notes and then you're not in the exam room anymore and you're not getting that validation and you're not getting thank you notes because you're not in the exam room like you used to be. It feels like you're like, I'm failing, right? The thing that I thought made me good, I'm no longer doing and so I'm failing. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of pain that I see people who are carrying around from this identity. So I kind of went through that as well. You know, I very much had this imposter syndrome of, as I do more and more things that I do, so I, I, I own Uncharted Veterinary Conference and I run this business conference and this, this sort of online community for, for vet leaders is a very much leadership development platform. And so as I do that and I, and I do more and more speaking and I do writing and stuff, I still practice, but not, not, not in a significant way like I used to. I mean, every week I'm in the clinic, but it's, it's at one day, you know, and, and, and that's it. And, and it's, it's, you know, you start to look at yourself and you're like, I don't like the idea that I'm pretending that I'm a full-time veterinarian. I don't want people to, to see that. And, and I don't like to, I don't like to live my life in this idea that like, that I'm misleading people about who I am. Like I, I want to have that confidence. I heard this uh, interview with a, a Hollywood agent one time and she said, powerful people don't wear toupees. And that's what she said. And the idea is that a toupee is something that someone wears because they're insecure about the way they look, right? Something like that. Like, so you got a, a guy and he's bald and, and he's going to wear a toupee. And she said, the thing is that people know and they've got something on you. Like you're trying to fool them. You're showing that you are insecure about this thing and they're, you know, and you're putting it forward in people and they know, and they feel like they've got something on you. And I don't mean this in a, in a, in a bad way at all, but the idea she's is powerful, powerful people don't wear toupees. The idea is that if you're, if you're powerful, you don't care, right? Like you're not going to give someone that leverage or that ability. You are who you are and you have that confidence. And, and again, I'm not trying to make this a, a referendum on toupees at all, but it just it was an interesting way of putting it. And, and she and she looked at it, and I'm kind of like, man, I feel like I'm wearing this veterinary toupee in a way of like I'm not in practice all the time, and I feel like I I'm worried about people knowing that, and that doesn't make any sense. It's not how I want to live my life, and it's not an authentic version of myself. And so I don't think anybody cares, uh, but I care, right? Like like I'm I'm talking about my self identity and sort of sorting these things out. So anyway, ultimately, it comes about all the way back around to. Basically, I got comfortable with the idea of not being a, a quote unquote real vet, right? Like I was like, look, I'm a guy, I, I'm a writer and a speaker and I practice. I'm a dad and I practice, right? I, I think we have a problem in vet medicine in a lot of ways of like just having our identity so wrapped up in our job. I think there's something really healthy in being able to say it's just a job. Like it's not who I am. I go to work and I do the thing and I go home and I put it down and I have other hobbies and I do other things and I engage with my family. And like, I think that there's, uh, when we talk about burnout and mental health and stuff like that in vet medicine, I think this idea of being a veterinarian defines my core being. I don't know that that's really healthy. My sort of mental shift was to say, I'm not going to ask myself if I'm a real vet or not. I am, I am a dad who practices, you know, I am a writer who sees cases. Like that's what I do. That's who I am. And that's not cognitive dissonance for me because that, that is, that is who I am and it's an authentic version of sort of myself and how I see it. And so when I talk to, to leaders who have, say, moved up and they're managing people now instead of seeing appointments, 
a lot of them go, but am I a real vet? And I was like, well, you kind of, there's two options. You can either try to talk yourself around into the idea that, yes, I am a real vet because this is what being a real vet means. And so you go through the process of defining what is a real vet in your mind, or you can let that go and just say, I am, uh, I am a leader of people who also sees appointments when it's needed and, 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 and decide to be okay with that. But anyway, that, that was sort of the process that I, that I sort of went through. Well, and I mean, I'm listening to you talk and, and I relate so, so closely to everything that you're saying, like all of those emotions I can identify with. And I agree with you about having it baked into your identity, like like you put it and that yeah. it is a reality. I don't know if it's it's healthy, but I know it's yeah, part it of is me. what it is. Yeah, sure. It, yeah, like I can I can certainly feel that way. Well, of course, like think about the process it takes to become a vet. Right. So you go through four years of vet school. Vet school is hard. Like yeah. it's really hard. I'll never forget one of my buddies that was in vet school. At one point, it was like one in the morning and we're in the library and we're like studying. And he looked at me and he said, honestly did you think vet school was going to be this hard? And I was like, no, I a hundred percent did not think it was going to be this hard. I was like, yeah, it's a thing. I'll go. It's like a program. I've done school my whole life. I've done a lot of school. I had no idea how hard vet school would be. I just, I still blown away at like how difficult it was, but it was this, it was this crucible in a lot of ways. And when you go through something like that, it does become an identity, right? You see people who are like wild college fans, like they went to the school and now they have all the, you know, I mean, Florida Gator, Florida so, Gator yeah. all the way. I know exactly. It, but, but that school is that turned up nine notches, right? Like it's the same thing of like people celebrate because they had this experience and, and it's sort of, they in, in incorporate this experience into their identity. But man, that's nothing compared to vet medicine when you're like, boy, the training process is so rigorous and so grueling. And then I punch in and punch out every single day. And, and what we do is emotionally challenging work. It is, is a very difficult job. It's a great job. It's a difficult job. And so all of those things are like, you carry those, those sort of, those scars, those experiences. And of course they kind of bake into how you see yourself. I, I think it's, is undeniable. It's it's going to happen. I think I think so much. It may be an unreasonable goal to say I'm going to think this is just a job and, and still be happy. I think it's probably one of those things in life that's good to aspire to because you're never going to do it. But by trying to get there, you're putting yourself into a healthy space. You know what I mean? Like I, yeah. I don't even know that that that. Yeah, I, I think if you're like. I don't see it as a job, so I'm failing. I think it's wrong. I think that you should aspire to see it as a job. And then when you come up short, you're probably where you need to be. You're probably where a lot of us are. Yeah. And yeah. we're all of us. Hopefully, yeah. Well, and it, I mean, I, I like that you brought up the cognitive dissonance and there's this internal monologue that we're all trying to figure out. But listening to you talk about it and thinking about it from my own perspective, I'm like, oh my gosh, I think I'm putting all of this energy into how I describe what I do to other people. Like that is yes. where the, the rub is. And I'm like, is it in the grand scheme of things? Like, is it really that important how I describe my job to other people who ask me? It's, it's interesting. For most people, the answer is a solid no. There are other vets that will 100% look at you like, oh, but do you practice? And like, it's, right. it, you see it. Like, I, I just remember people over the years always ask me, and like, but how much do you practice? And it's interesting because in their mind, like, that's the value system that they have, which is uh, you're a vet, which is defined at how many, you know, how many hours a week you're in practice seeing patients and putting your hands on them. And like, that's how they associate what you're doing. I think that when you're being asked that question, it feels like a judgment question of like, what is your worth? I don't think that people mean it that way. I think they genuinely want to understand what do you do with your time, you know? And sure. so I think that the way that you receive that question is probably different from how it's intended. Although there are some people who definitely have that measuring stick out. And what I would say is it's a stupid measuring stick. There you go. You know, is that really a healthy yeah, Exactly measure? right. Yeah, exactly right. It's like, you know, but how many hours do you spend in the exam room? And I'm like, what does that have to do with anything really? Right. You know what I mean? Like Better if you want to understand, medicine. like it's, it's so far and wide, there's so much more to it. Yeah. Well, if you want to understand how I spend my time, then yeah, I totally, I totally get it. If, if it's the idea is I'm, we're going to compare ourselves as individuals to each other based on the number of hours we spend in the exam room. That's just not a, that's not a contest that I'm particularly interested in, but I do think that part of the growth is deciding that you're not part, you're not interested in that contest. If you think that contest is important, then it's going to, then, then the measuring is a big deal for you and always will be a big deal from you. But I, I think what's liberating is to say, I don't, this is not a contest I want to win. It's kind of like if you step back and you look at, you know, I think most of us go through this in life, right? We, we came to vet medicine and we did not come here for riches, right? And so at some point, 
in this world and we've got this very you know, visual society and people are on social media and, and we see how other people live their lives and we're seeing the best versions of themselves in the front stage and their vacations and stuff. At some point you have to kind of decide, well, what, what does it mean to have a happy life? And so I think most of us at some point figured out like, I'm not going to measure the quality of my life by the money that I make or by the sure. material possessions that I have. And I think this is another extension of that is like we are, we're always deciding how we're gonna measure the quality of our life. And so there's just a lot of us who measure the quality of our life by the number of hours we spend in the exam room helping pets. And that's not a bad, it's not a bad measurement, but I wouldn't compare people with that measurement. And I choose not to value myself based on that measurement. I feel like you're speaking to my soul here because, <laughs> because <laughs> uh, spoiler alert, I did increase my time in industry and, at, and it was hard and, I, and sure. I struggled a lot emotionally, probably because of that measuring stick we're talking about. But at some point I looked around and I was like, you know, I'm, I'm really happy with the situation that I have here. And I'm the same as you. I still, I still practice. I still practice a, a lot. It, it did kind of become this. I, I became comfortable talking to people about what I do and yeah. saying, you know, I'm in continuing education. And and I think you actually helped me craft some of that wording of like, this is what you do. This yeah. is what you're doing. And it, it helped put a label on it, helped it help me recognize the importance of it. And, and then at, I woke up one day and. Yeah, exactly like you're describing, like that measuring stick didn't matter anymore. Yeah, like, that, that's I'm, what it's got to be. Good. I'm, I'm in continuing education and I practice veterinary medicine. Like, yeah. that's great. Like, that's that's an accurate representation of, of who you are. And, and also, when you use that language, it it's you verbalizing the measuring stick that, that has chosen to matter to you, right? Everybody should have a measuring stick, right? I was going to say, should, should we have these measuring should. sticks? No, Are these you important? should, but you should be extremely intentional about which measuring stick you choose, right? Because your life is what you focus on. And so if you focus on the fact that I'm not in the clinic as much as I want to be or as much as I used to be, then your life is one of you coming up short. And that's how your life is. And if you focus on politics and you're like, I, I eat, breathe and sleep politics, then your life is, is politics and conflict. And your life is this thing that's going on that you really have very little or no influence in. Right. And that's your life is this thing that you don't have any influence over. And so Again, I, I'm not saying, you know, ignore this or do that, but I am saying you should be intentional about what you focus on. And so, you know, if you say it, it's a subtle shift, but if you say I'm going to measure myself based on the number of appointments that I see and I switch that over to I'm going to measure my life based on the impact I have in my community. Those are different measuring sticks. Very. But I don't think that one is necessarily better than the other. But I think that you can select a measuring stick that matches what you're doing and who you are. And I think you can be much more happy. But ultimately, you know, it, you have to decide what's important so you can so you can live your life to it. But you should be really intentional about how you make that selection. I like your your focus on intentionality there. Like, I think that is something that's really difficult because because it is so easy to define yourself as a veterinarian by exam room yeah. time and then when you oh. get away from that all of a sudden you know you're kind of like a ship without a rudder of where am i who am i what am i doing so not just letting it all come together and figure it out along the way but but seeing it clearly and and i like what you said about being intentional about how you craft that messaging to yourself even more importantly than other people oh absolutely so you know, veterinary medicine is it's it's intoxicating that way in that there are so many things that we can quantify in medicine. And like I think most of us look around and try to figure out is our is our life meaningful? Are, are we living the purpose that we want? And we always want to know how we're doing. And honestly, that's I don't know how much of it is is trained into us uh, or bred into us versus how much is trained into it. I promise you, it is definitely trained into us. Right. So we go through vet school and everybody's trying to get an A and everything is quantified. And what did you get on this exam? And what did you get in this course? And do you get a gold star? Do you get a pat on the back? And, and like we're we're brought up into that system. And so then you get out and I see a lot of vets really struggle with the end of the pat on the head you know, A plus system. And so they look for another way to pat, pat themselves on the head or get the A plus or get the gold star. And vet medicine offers a lot of things that are very quantifiable. How many appointments did you see today? How many patients did you see? How many thank you notes did you get? Did people mention you in online reviews? You know, was your Google rating? Was your practices Google rating? Are you doing this other thing? Are you certified in this thing or that thing? There's all of these little gold stars and, and metrics and, and numbers that you can put on and say, how am I doing? How am I doing? How am I doing? The thing that's hard to put a number on is how you're going to feel at the end of your days. You know what I mean? When you look back on your life and say, did I live a good life? I think a lot of us would really like to be able to get a report card that tells us how we did. 
you know, because a lot of us came up in that system and we were like, I've always gotten A's. Or right. I'm, I'm going to get an A How in life. How else will I know? How <laughs> else will I know? And, but there is no report card that comes at the end. You know what I mean? Like you don't yeah. get a grade on the quality relationship you have with your kids. You know yeah. what I mean? You don't, yeah. you don't get a grade based on who you affected and how you helped other people in their lives. That's, it's not quantifiable. And I think that that's, that's a challenge. I think it's really easy to try to look at the numbers and say, how am I doing? How am I doing? And so this is, it's not an easy issue. But it's kind you, of an internal. It's absolutely um, an internal thing. Evaluation there. And that's because things are so externally quantifiable and there's so much data to say how we're doing, you know, at least professionally maybe it makes it harder to look internally and, and find that internal validation. Oh, of course it is. I, I really struggle with this. I, again, it's, it's, you write the book you need to read. I, I, I really struggle with validating myself. It was funny. I was, I was talking to somebody recently and you know, I, I big believer in positive reinforcement. Like I really am. And so like my staff that I work with, I really want them to know how much I appreciate them. I really focus a lot more on trying to catching people do doing good work and calling it out as opposed to saying, oh, this didn't really go well, or we could do that better. I, I'd much rather catch them when they crush it and just say, yeah. did you see that? Did you see how that worked? See how great that was? Let's do that again. Cause that was amazing. You know, like it's just, it's a better way to, to grow people and to make them want to work for you. But the truth is I don't tend to use that with myself very much. I'm very, I'm very problem focused. And so I'm, I'm that guy who like, I could do a surgery and it would be great. And I will say that incision could have been smaller. Mm-hmm. That's exactly it. Yes, you know, yeah. Like, did I put in, did I put that suture in the right spot? I should, could did I put have, an extra one in that I shouldn't uh, have? It's pooching out at the bottom. Yes. <laughs> yeah. The dog ears. I can't. Exactly. <laughs> and like. I, I don't, it's just, it's a, th- it's a thing we all kind of have to work on, right? I think a lot of things that make you great in your profession is a veterinarian or is anything else. Most all the things that make you great are also double-edged swords. Like your attention to detail is going to torture you in that you can't control everything and it'll always be wrong. Your perfectionism is going to make you wonderful in working up cases and it's going to punish you because you're going to really struggle to delegate because other people yeah. won't do it the way that you do. You're... I don't know, your, your charisma is great because it makes people want to be around you and it also makes it really hard to get out of exam rooms yeah. and slows you down. It, 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 but it's, it's, it's almost all that way. It's, it's really interesting. And so I just, I didn't realize earlier in, in my life how much our real strengths are almost always weaknesses on the other side and we really have to manage our strengths or else they'll, they'll eat us up. Yeah, I never really thought about it. You know, you always think about it from the contrary perspective of like, you know, my my greatest weakness actually is my greatest strength yeah. and, and all this. But you're right. Like our, our, it goes the other way. My strength is is my weakness as well. I remember right before my vet school interview, having a conversation with a friend of mine who was helping me prep for the interview. And I was working as a as a technician at the time. And I said, I'm, you know, I'm pulling my hair out. And I can't keep up with all of these things. And he said, well, don't you have other people that you work with? And I said, well, yeah, but the manager pulled me aside and she said, you know, ultimately what happens on the floor is my responsibility at the end of the night. And so I just I have to go and I have to make sure everything is right, because otherwise it's going to come back on me. And he said, well, don't you trust the people you work with? Yeah. And I said, yeah, of course I do. He's like, well, then why are you you know, why are you having to go back and, and check and double check? And so what you said there about. You know, being a really bad delegator, I feel like is something that that I can identify with very closely. I can, I, I certainly feel the the perfectionist and detail oriented tendencies in myself, just because I think we're all sure. a little bit that way. I don't think my husband would agree. I think no. would. <laughs> well, you know, and, but it's it's and it's it's on the flip side as well. So so my one of my strengths is delegation. Like I tend to leverage people really as well. I'm such a big technician fan. It's because I, I like techs and I yeah. like working with techs and they make me so much faster and better because I'm very comfortable delegating to them. But there's a flip side to that sort as well, which is I will, off, I will empower people and sometimes they'll struggle because, you know, I empower them, but they don't have no, as, as much support as they would like. And I, I have to manage that of, I'm very willing to give you this thing. I'm giving you an opportunity here but sometimes I delegate these things away and you know, there's a chance I'm going to have to go back and, and, and say this didn't work out the way that we wanted or, hey, I didn't realize that you hadn't been trained in this, you know, and, and things like that. But that's there's no perfect way. You're going to fail on one side or the other. You're either you're either not going to give people opportunities. You're not going to give them autonomy or you're giving them autonomy and they're going to make mistakes. Sure. And so you pick your poison. And like that's, that's another part of that's another part of life is, is we're always just picking our poison. Right. The Buddhists say that life is suffering and like that seems really awful and morbid. 
but I think it, I think it's true in, in a lot of ways. I think that that life is always going to be hard, and you should just know it's always going to be hard. And the greatest empowerment we have is choosing how you're going to struggle because you're going to struggle. And so, do you want to struggle by holding on to everything so it gets done the right way, or do you want to struggle by giving it away to people and then you have to check back up on them? And every now and then we have to make some adjustments. There's no way that doesn't have some hardship in it. It's choosing the hardship that you have. I'm. I've heard the Buddha saying life is suffering. I think that that's good life advice to say, like you said, life is going to be hard no matter what. Yeah. How would you apply that to vet med? Like, I mean, in some ways, vet med is hard. Like, it's always <laughs> going to be ways, hard. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's exactly it, right? So people talk a lot about the hardships of the profession. I, I think this is really, I'm really glad you asked me this because I think this is really important. Vet medicine is always going to be hard. Mm-hmm. It is a hard job. It is an emotionally taxing job. It is a mentally taxing job. It is a hard job. You get to choose how you suffer in this life and how you struggle. And so here is the question. Do you want to struggle having a hard job that people get really upset about? Like there's people who have strong emotional feelings about their pets and how their pets are treated. You're going to deal with people who are having the worst days of their life. Mm-hmm. You're going to deal with high, st- high stakes situations. You're going to deal with death, but you're going to do work that matters. Do you want to struggle, struggle and suffer that way? Or do you want to have a job that nobody cares mm-hmm. whether or not you actually make the widget? Nobody, no one's ever going to know whether or not you showed up for your shift in, you know, whatever big warehouse. That's suffering as well because you're doing work that doesn't matter or you're doing work that nobody cares about or they don't care very much about. And there's not a right answer. And there's not a wrong answer. And I'm not trying to crap on anybody's job. But at some point, we chose a hard job. And the alternative is to choose a not hard job or a not important job or a job that does not affect other people in the deep way that we affect pet owners. And that's your choice. Yeah, for me, I, I think it depends on the day which way I want to suffer. There's yeah. oh yeah for the mo- for the the resounding majority of the time, I love doing the work that matters. But I definitely have my days that I wake up and I would rather go make widgets. Sure, of course, and I think, but I think that that's also, I think there's there's truth to that as well. Of, of like, you know, you don't have life comes in waves, right? In phases. I'm not a big believer in, in the phase of work life balance. I, I don't like that. It, it, it means to me when, I, when people say work life balance, I imagine that I'm supposed to sleep for eight hours. I'm supposed to work for eight hours and I'm supposed to be uh, detached with my family for eight hours, right? Sure. Um, that's too many hours. No, that's right. Yeah, anyway. Yeah. All right, cool. But, but that's how it's broken up, right? And you do this and you do this. My life has never worked that way. Everything has bled over into other things. And I just think that that's, that's kind of how, I think that's how it is. I think I hear you talk about work-life integration. Yes. It is very much starting to think about what, what kind of what kind of life do you want to have and, and how does it make it and how does it work? My big thing when I look at work-life integration is, you know, your life is complicated and, and, and I, there's no balance. It, it doesn't work that way. But the, the way that it looks like for me is, is there's tides, right? Like think of like ocean tides. You have high tides and low tides and they come in phases. And that's just been how my life has always worked. And I can't comment on other people's lives, but mine is for sure. Sometimes they're high tides. And what that means is we're working all the time. And yeah. sometimes it's low tides and, and we get to relax. Remember when you went to vet school and you got your butt kicked in the first year? That's high tide. And remember your first year if you did an internship or your first year as a new vet, that's high tide. Mm-hmm. And when you're three or four years in, perhaps you're going you're gonna to organize your life and say, hey, I'm, I'm comfortable now. I've got a number of years of experience. I'm going to take kind of this year and just sort of practice and not push myself to new things. Or maybe you say, hey, I've been out five years and I'm going to buy this vet practice and it's going to be a huge, that's a, that's a high tide. And we don't always get to choose when our high tides and low tides are, but, but I think that that's really important. You should always pay attention to that. And so, Yes, you're not going to feel every day like this is how I want to suffer. This is what I want to do. I'm going to keep the pedal to the metal. I don't think that's sustainable either. But I think there's times in our lives, and I'm not talking about three hours. I'm not talking about three weeks. I'm talking about a year where you're going to lean in and you're going to work. And and this is going to be kind of a burden that you're going to carry. And then hopefully you're going to set your life up so that you have some time to kind of lean lean back a little bit. And maybe have a a low time when things kind of roll along in a a more organized, less stressful sort of way. But anyway, that's just kind of how it's been for me is things go well and you know six months I'm kind of laid back and then a, a year I work really hard and then you know kind of another year you say well this is I, I've, I've figured some things out I've got a good job I'm comfortable here I'm just going to kind of do this and, and live my life and then the, something else will come along and, and the tide will rise again I also I can handle stressful times I, and I'm okay with feeling god I'm working all the time as long as I believe like I'm 
I can, there's a path ahead. I'm going somewhere. Right. There's a light at the it's, end of the tunnel. Exactly. Yeah. If you're working and you're like, I'm working all the time and there's no way out for me and I do not see this changing. I think it's a really dark place to be. If you're saying I'm working really hard right now because I'm onboarding new assistants and, and front desk staff. Right. And so you go, God, I'm working so hard, but you're going to get them onboarded and you're going to get them trained. And then you're going to be able to step back and breathe a little bit. That's a much happier, friendlier place than I'm working really hard and this is my life forever. And I, I think, I think that when people find themselves mentally in that second place, that that's, that's a dark place that a lot of people are. That's where we start to go to burnout. Exactly. That's where we start to get a burnout. And so anyway, there's some, there's some things that we can make if, you know, if you're in the, the adjustments we can make if you get into that place. But I think when we talk about people working hard, burnout's not about working hard. Burnout is about looking ahead at the future and what you see. There's this book called, it's called Lone Survivor, right? So it's, it's an army book. It's, it's the, Mark Wahlberg was in a movie called Lone Survivor. Anyway, in the book, it's, it's interesting because this, guy, this guy's true story of his life, and he's a Navy SEAL, and he talks about the Navy SEAL training, right? And so they go through this really intense, crazy training, and it's like 10 weeks long, and basically the last week, they call it Hell Week, and it's just awful, and like you don't sleep for a week, and it's oh just complete gosh. brutality, okay? So he tells his story, and what happens is they go through nine weeks of just grueling training, and they get to the 10th week, which is Hell Week, and they have this bell. And if you ring the bell, it means you, you quit and you drop out of the training. And so they're always trying to get people to ring the bell because they want them to drop out. So only the best of the best of the best get, get through this thing. Anyway, the guy tells a story about how on the first day of Hell Week, more people rang that bell than had read it, rang it in the previous nine weeks. Okay. And so later on, he was talking to one of the instructors and he said, you know, that was really weird because here we were and it was the first day of Hell Week and we have had harder days, absolutely had harder days than the first day of Hell Week. But all these guys dropped out on the first day of Hell Week. Why is that? And the instructor said, because it's not the day that broke them. It's the knowledge that there's six more days ahead. That's what broke them. And that's the same thing in vet medicine, where there's not a hard day that's going to break you. But if you believe that there's nothing but hard days ahead, that's what drags you down and holds you there. And so it's really not about that, what I did today. It's about the idea that there's not a light at the end of the tunnel that I'm going towards. If you're looking at your life and you're looking at your career, I need you to believe that things are going to get better. I need you to see the light at the end of the tunnel. Even if you have to make that light, even if it's, I'm going to do this for three months. And if they're not able to hire more people to help me, I am going to go and tell them, Hey, I am changing my work schedule because I can't keep this up. Or in three months, if they don't have some help, I'm going to leave. And you go, oh, that's, that's awful. And I go, it's not awful. It's me being honest about what I'm capable of and what's possible. You know, remember, like, at some point, I think the biggest lesson that veterinarians need to learn right now is you need to look in the mirror and you need to start to think about capacity. And your capacity is your ability to actually do work. How much can you handle? And your desire to help people cannot outshine your capacity. It can't. Not, not in an ongoing way. There are some days that... I give more than I have. I suck it up and I grip my teeth and I do it. I can't do that for a year. Right. Right. I can do it for a day. I can do it for maybe for a week, maybe three weeks. I can't, you know, it, I can't live my life this right. way. And so that's just how it is. And so at some point you have to believe that you can't pour from an empty cup, right? You can't feed from an empty pantry. If you don't have it to give, you can't give it. And so the question then is, what is your goal, right? What is your measuring stick? And what happens is a lot of people get the wrong measuring stick in their mind. They say, how much good can I do today? Right. right? And that's the measuring stick they have. And that's the wrong measuring stick. The right measuring stick is, how much good can I do in my career? Mm -hmm. Right. And that's really important because if you give of yourself and you give of yourself and you give of yourself and you burn out and you leave the profession in four years, the amount of good you did is tiny compared to had you had set some boundaries and you work for 30 years because you didn't burn out. The overall amount of good that you do is significantly greater by you saying no, setting some, some boundaries, deciding this is what I'm able to do. I'm sorry. This is all I have to give and keeping that in a sustainable way. And too many of us, we help ourselves out of the profession. And that's a problem. I feel like you're just like in my head right now. I, I For some reason, I feel like every time we talk, you say exactly what I need to hear. And this is no <laughs> exception because I've been in both of those spots. I've, I've been in, in 
you know, a clinical capacity where I'm like, this is never going to get any better. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, take it on the flip side. I've talked about my mobile practice on the podcast before, and I've been working really hard on it lately, really hard. And it has to do with clients, but a lot of it has to do with paperwork and automations and all these different things. And it's been a lot. And, and to the point where I'm like, I don't know how much longer I can keep this up, but there is that light at the end of the tunnel. There is that, you know, to finish it. And it's a totally different feeling dealing with that than it is that clinical, this is never going to get any better. And and I say clinical because that's what the experience was for me. And talking about that work-life integration, it made me think about my kids. And one of the things I like to talk about is walking that line as a parent of, you know, I want to be the mom for my kids that's there for what they need, that, you know, I want to show up to their games and their concerts and and whatever they have going on and and make sure that they can live, you know, this full, happy childhood. But at the same time, I also want to be this good example of, you know, I'm I'm speaking from a woman's perspective of this person who goes and and, and I have goals and I have aspirations and I work hard and I attain them. And man, it is such a balancing act. And your high tide and low tide example was, I was like, oh yeah, yeah, that sounds, I identify with that. Well, I mean, high tide is is dance season when your kid is on three dance teams and they do this thing, but it's a season. Right. Some people are like, that's my whole life. And I go, we need to talk about capacity. Yes, <laughs> yes. But but if you're like, this is what we do. And we've got, you know, we've got Monday, Wednesday and Friday dance and it's, it's for you know, three months out of the year or whatever. And you decide this is important. Well, it's high tide and we're going to we're going to buckle down. We're going to pull together as a family. We're going to talk about logistics, how we get this thing done. We're going to we're going to do some time management and we're, and, and we're, and we're going to do it with the idea that we're going to do this. And then we're going to step back and you can, kids, you can do something else, but it's going to be one night a week. Uh, there, there you go. A, yeah. a, after that, but the, the, that, that's exactly what I'm talking about as far as high tides and low tides is, you know, it, it may not be possible to say two nights a week per kid, per activity in perpetuity. That's what happens. Mm-hmm. No, it's, sometimes it's five nights a week for a couple of months and then we go down to one night a week. But my, my big thing is you need to, you need to go back to, you need to intentionally go right. back down to one night a week and say, this is low tide intentionally. And then, you know, in three months, six months or whatever, we're going to step back up and this new thing is going to start and we're going to, we're going to pick it back up from there. And also kind of like taking turns, like, okay, we're going to, you know, it's dance season. So we're going to do Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and then we're going to have competitions on the weekend. We're going to travel and then end that. And okay, you know, I've, I've put some of the work aside because I've really tried to focus on this and and be present for this. Well, now I need to focus here a little bit more and, and I need to spend some time for on myself, on my business, what, you know, whatever it yeah. is. Yeah. And, and there's, there are two pieces of that, you know, one is I think that relaxing in some rigidity of how we think things are supposed to be and, and buying into the integration part, I think is key. So you're working on your mobile practice and everything. Uh, Cassie, there's, there's nothing wrong with, with working your butt off and then stopping at 3 PM and receiving your kids from school and doing the stuff you want to do with them and hanging out and helping with homework and, you know, and, 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 and having some relaxing time and whatever, and then picking your laptop back up at nine o'clock at night mm-hmm. and banging you out. You are an- describing and so much. <laughs> ba- exactly. And banging on another 90 minutes uh, of work before you go to bed. Like that's not wrong. And like, if that's works, cause the kids, the kids go to bed at eight 30 and like, and like, I'm going to work from eight 30 to 10 and like, not, not every night, but three nights, you know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, this is my plan. Or just tonight, I got stuff I need to do. I'm going to pick this back up. It's not failing. I think a lot of us, we, we set in our minds, I'm going to work from eight to five, and then I'm going to be a mom or a dad from five to nine. And then I'm going to relax in the bathtub from nine to, you know, 10. And then that's going to be my day. And when that doesn't happen, because, hey, I need to be a mom from noon today on, or I need to be a dad from noon today, because it's a half day at school for some unknown reason, uh, you know, like, like I got dumped on it. Or, <laughs> yeah, or I'm going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, I'm going to clock out and go to this 11am, you know, dance recital on Wednesday, you know, at the school's mm-hmm. putting on, um, I'm going to do it because it's what's expected to me, uh, but I'm not going to beat myself up about it. And I think a lot of us, we, we, we do the thing it takes to be a good parent and we feel guilty about it the whole time. I feel like we have to justify it. 100% like, well, I went to, to the thing, it. but I went back to my laptop. Like nobody cares. Nobody cares. Yes, exactly. Like, did you get the work done? Yeah, did you get the work done? So, so I run, I run a company, we do business conferences, business development, things like that. We have unlimited vacation and I don't care when you work. And so that's how the business is set up. The way that we run it that way is, I'm very problem focused being like, hey, I need you, Cassie, I need you to fix this problem. Mm-hmm. And that's it. And yeah. that's it. And then don't like, care I don't, how you fix I, it. I don't care. Yeah. I, I don't care if I don't care if you do it at four in the morning, as long as you don't call me. Uh, like, <laughs> yeah. But but I don't care if you do it at four in the morning, as long as you, as you do it. But if that works in, in your in your life, I think that's great. I think there's a lot of rigidity around our schedules that have been kind of imposed over time. And again, I know that that's not feasible. Like you can have a vet clinic that's just kind of open whenever we feel like being there. However, I still think there's a lot of things in our lives where we can say, am I supposed to be unplugged from my work from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m.? Yes or no. Or 
am I supposed to be engaged with my kids and making sure that I'm giving them quality time and my attention? The latter is much more flexible. There's so many more ways to do this. But if it's, I'm supposed to be off work from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m., there's only one way to do that. And it's wildly, rigidly inflexible. That seems like a, I, I don't understand why the goal is to be unavailable from 3 to 6 p.m. What is that? It's a made up, it's a made up construct, right? Of like, we put this on ourselves and we, and we act like we're failing if we're not available. I just think that's a dumb idea. Like no one's like, oh, mom. I really wish you'd been available from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. Like, no, they're like, oh, mom, I wish you'd. I really appreciate I, that 7 to 8, but yeah, man, the 3 to 6 I, exactly. is what I needed. Like, yeah, exactly. That, that's what I mean. But your kid's never going to look you in the eye and go, you know what really mattered to me? That 4.30 meeting that you canceled. <laughs> like, there's never gonna, like it's, it's what matters is the relationship that we have. And it's funny. I, I've been through periods in my life where I beat myself up because I was working too hard. And then I cut back and I beat myself up because I wasn't working hard enough. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Yes, and like at yes. some point I was like, this is ridiculous. Like I can't, I, I'm beating myself up for being with my family and I'm beating myself up for not being my family. And I'm beating myself up for working and beating myself up for not working. I'm like, Andy, how, what, what, how do you, how is this sustainable? You know what I mean? Yeah, I do know what you're saying. And I hope this, this talk helps a lot of people out there because yes, like that is a hundred percent me. And it's so comforting to know that I'm not the only one that's doing no, that. No, I, I don't think you are. We're all, we're all hard driving, you know, people. I think, I think a lot of it is, is stepping back. And for me, that whole thing of like, you know, we choose how we suffer. I, I think a lot of it is stepping back and saying, what is possible? What is important? What am I trying to accomplish here? And I think most of us never stopped and said, what am I trying to accomplish? I mean, honestly, think about how many veterinarians went to vet school and they learned the thing and they were like, hey, professors, what am I supposed to do? And the professor's like, you should do an internship. And they're like, all right, I'm going to do an internship. And you're like, hey, internship, what am I supposed to do? And they're like, you should get a job. And you're like, I'm getting a job. Hey, boss, what am I supposed to do? You're supposed to see 20 appointments a day forever. And you're like, I'm doing it. And like, at any point, did you stop and say, what do I want to get out of this deal? Yeah, I think there's a term micro flexibilities that basically saying, you know, we have two income households and there's a lot of things going on and, and, and things are really busy. So like you said, you know, to, to not hold to these very rigid schedules to say, yeah. you know, I'm going to take an hour here, I'm going to take an hour there and, and focus on that and not beat yourself up for it, not feel like you have to justify it to yourself or other people. That's where I really struggle. Well, I, I think I think the biggest thing for me in, in making that happen was intentionality. I think a lot of us are very comfortable with the idea of intentionality and planning in our job, but we don't think that intentionality and planning in our personal life is a thing that we do. And I'll give you the simplest of examples. Like life-changing thing for me is my Sunday meeting with my wife. And on Sundays, and we're pretty darn religious about it at this point, on Sundays, we look at the calendar for the coming week and say, what are we, what are we doing for meals? What, you know, what are you doing in the evening? Where am I doing? Where do the kids need to be? Let's all get on the same page. And... What I have found is my, again, you choose how you suffer. I can make time and have this meeting on Sunday and get my calendar out and sit with my wife in a way that feels kind of weird because I'm like, oh, let's check your availability. All right. It's, 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 it's so true though. We do, the, we do the same thing, but we don't do it religiously on Sunday. So I hope my husband doesn't listen to this because he will be like, that is a brilliant yeah, idea. I, well, I tell you, so, so you choose how you suffer. So you can either do the awkward meeting on Sundays and make time for it, or you can have fights on Thursday because they're like, I thought you were going to take her to gymnastics. And you're like, you can have these sacrifices that you can't see. They're not on your, like fight with my wife is not on my calendar at any point. I no, promise. And it's not a, it, not it, schedule that. Not a, you know, kind of like we've talked about other things not being sustainable in the long term. Like you don't, you know, nobody wants to fight with their spouse on a regular basis. Right, exactly. And, and when I say fight, I, we're being overly dramatic. Sure. But, it, but it's that, it is that, it's that, it's not necessarily a fight, but it's, you feel your cortisol spike. Yeah. And you feel the stress and you're like, I'm not around tonight to do this thing that you're asking me to do. And they're frustrated because it's, their plan is not going and it feels like a fight, even though you're both rooting for each other and you're right, both being understandable. Right. Yeah, you don't want to let the other person down. Exactly right. You don't want to let the other person down. Anyway, everybody understands that that, that emotional feeling. Sure. So anyway, but, but it really comes back down to you pick your battles. One of my favorite sayings is, um, and I, I talk about a lot of things I talk about in the, in the clinic just apply to regular life. But in the clinic, one of my favorite sayings is if there's something that happens in your clinic again and again and again that surprises you, at some point it's not a surprise. It's your business model, you know? If you end up with clients standing around at the end of the day and you're trying to close the door and they're like, no, I walked in here, I'm staying here. If that happens one time, you deal with it. And if it happens once a month, you deal with it. If it happens three times a week, it's your business model is having people standing in your lobby at the end of the day. And you can either just accept that that's what your business model is and be okay with it and make sure your staff is okay with it. Or you can make changes 
to address it, but acting like, I can't believe people are standing in the lobby again. Like at some point you go, why can you not believe that? It happens all the time. Same thing is true with, in our personal lives. Like at some point, if I look around on Wednesdays and I'm like, what do you mean I'm supposed to take her? You're supposed to take her. If I'm arguing with my wife every Wednesday about kid transport, at some point, I'm the doofus right. who hasn't figured out yet that Wednesday kid transport is a problem and we need to sort it out intentionally and figure out how we're going to get this done. I feel like we've come full circle here with the intentionality. Like, I feel like it. a lot of it does come down to intentionality in in our, our self-talk and yeah. how, we, how we think about ourselves and how we talk to ourselves, how we express that to people because whether or not it should be important, I think we've determined that it is. And just that it can offer a lot of a lot of peace when you sit down and have that self-reflection or or that Sunday meeting or, or whatever it is to really know where you stand and you're not just kind of flailing. Yeah. Oh, I think I think that's I think that's really important. And then it's, you know, it's validating yourself and it's validating your spouse. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's saying, hey, I see I see you. I see you working hard. And you know, it's funny if you, if you take a second and think, you know, what's really important in your life? Is it your, you know, net promoter score as a veterinarian or is it how your spouse feels about you? And you might say, well, it's how my spouse feels about me. And I go, okay, well, your spouse probably feels the same way. When's the last time you told your spouse that they're crushing it? When was the last time you told your spouse, hey, I just want you to know uh, there's no measuring stick for this, but I want you to know that you're, you're succeeding, you're winning. We don't get a lot of that. And I think that that's a problem. Sure, sure. Absolutely. Yeah, I know. I can think about that. My, my husband's great about having those, those little kudos moments and Good. stuff. And it really changes my whole day. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. It's, you know, it, it's, I mean, it's, it's like in vet medicine a lot, right? It's, there is no scenario where everything in the clinic runs smoothly. There's chaos baked into the bread in vet medicine. Like it's just, there's too many things that are your control, right? There's emergencies. There's people walking in, pets get sick. They can't control pet owners. You know what I mean? Like I think we can kid ourselves that I'll get this figured out and there'll be a system and people will show up on time for their appointments and blah, blah, blah. Like, Wait, that, no, that doesn't happen? Never going to happen. <laughs> that's it's what I, that's happen. a lie I tell myself. Yeah. It's, 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 we tell ourselves a lie. It's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. We need to just go along with the idea that there is chaos and it's, there's going to be some chaos, but I, I can still be intentional. I can still try to set myself up for success. I can still uh, ad adapt based on, on what happens, but I don't know. I, I think that chaos can be fun uh, and, it, and it can be rewarding and it's, it's part of what we are. If you feel like you're failing because they're chaos, I think that you're failing because vet medicine is, is vet medicine. You know, like that's just what it is. Yes. No, I, I very much relate to that statement you know control the things that you can control and that allows you to lean into lean into the yeah. chaos a little bit and I have fun with it like my my day got totally derailed this past Tuesday where I had a full schedule and then I had yeah. multiple emergencies walk in literally dying and yeah. it just was what it was but because a lot of the rest of it was controlled and we knew what to expect we we dealt with it and you know we did a lot of good for well I have a, a sort of a niche analogy for this and I'll, I'll give it and this maybe where, where we're sort of wrap up but I don't know if other people appreciate this but I'll tell you this uh, veterinary if you think about your your team at the vet clinic right your vet team it's the Muppet show right it's the Muppet show and so when you think about the Muppet show there's two kinds of Muppets there's order Muppets and there's chaos Muppets okay. and the chaos Muppets are the ones who are just they're riding bulls through the you know <laughs> they're trying to change the show on the last minute it's Gonzo shooting himself out of a cannon without any practice you know no targeting just sure. complete chaos and then there's the order muppets which are like scooter they have the they have the clipboard they're like no this has to go and these people have to go <laughs> and the whole muppet show is a battle between the chaos muppets and the order muppets and they battle for control and every single episode of the, of the muppet show is chaos versus order and kermit the frog is the linchpin right he's in the middle and his job is to balance the order muppets and the chaos muppets and he's always just about overwhelmed and then he pulls it out and so if the Muppet show was a basketball game, every single show would be, the score would be Chaos 98, Frog 99. Like that's how the Muppet show works. That's your vet clinic. It's every day is this chaos and you've got the Chaos Muppets and you've got the Order Muppets and you need them both. You can't just have the Order Muppets and the Chaos Muppets, they exist. They're real. And they may be pet owners that come in from the outside, but they are going to bring that chaos, the chaos there. That's what I'm going to so, start calling so pet people, owners. I, I, they are Chaos Muppets. Um, and there's people like me who are completely Chaos Muppets. Like I am 100% in, in that regard. But it's funny. We do this thing and I hear all the time in business, people talk about, oh, I want I want my practice to be Disney. Right. And you think about the Disney princesses. Right. And everybody shows up where they're supposed to and they're yeah. all put together and they're beautiful. And this is how it goes. And this is the time. And the prince shows up as they're supposed to. That is not how this works. We're it's, the, it's not Disney. It's the Muppet Show. And so 
if you own that and go, it's the Muppet Show, it makes everything feel okay because the expectation is not this is Disney in a well-oiled machine and everyone is on their spots and, you know, and they're all hitting their cues. It's like, nope, this is chaos. We're going to pull it out. Chaos 98, Frog 99. I love that. I like it just makes it so much more fun. And and I've been guilty of feeling like I'm failing when when the chaos Muppets take over and going, wait, why don't we have systems for this? Why? Why didn't I foresee this? So it's good to know that that that's just reality. And that's okay. Well, you can and you should keep making systems like 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 you should keep making systems. You should keep the the chaos Muppets or the order Muppets have to keep working. Right. And the chaos Muppets will just manifest. They will. Exactly. right. They will manifest as different chaos. The the difference in a thriving business and I think a thriving life and a struggling business or a struggling life is in a thriving business. You tackle a new problem every day. And in a struggling business, you have the same problem every day. And that is the difference in a thriving life and a thriving business and a struggling life and a struggling business. If you're dealing with the same problems again and again, you're in trouble. And if you're dealing with new problems, you're living a healthy life because there is no scenario where you don't get problems. And so this goes back to the quagmire we're talking about before. Is there a light at the end of the tunnel? The truth is, if you're solving new problems, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. If you're solving this, if you're back in the same problem every day, that's the struggle bus, right? Because you're doing the same problem over and over again, right? And so anyway, the, the answer is not a life without problems. The answer is a life with new problems every day. So do you have like four more hours? Because I could sit <laughs> here and continue to pick your brain for um, at double that. But I promise I would cut it off at four hours. <laughs> no, I've got, I've, I've got, a, I've got a, a massive conference to explore here. Uh, yeah. It is massive. Goodness. And we've been having all kinds of fun with people coming and taking pictures and making faces in the fishbowl. <laughs> at any point, I lost my train of thought. It was because someone was making faces at me <laughs> through the glass from outside. That's uh, happened a couple of times. I think we did a pretty good job of like maintaining our focus. despite the chaos Muppets. (laughs) Well, Andy, this has been great. Thank you so much for coming and sitting down with me in the booth. And yeah, I hope we get to do it again because I mean, we don't even have to turn the microphones on. Like I just, every time you talk, (laughs) it seems to be exactly what I need to hear. So I'm I'm not alone in that. So I think this will be what a lot of people need to hear. Well, thanks for saying that. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed that fishbowl fun. Andy, thank you so much for joining me. It was a blast. Like I said, if you haven't had a chance to check out the Uncharted podcast or the Cone of Shame podcast, I love them both and highly recommend them. For more episodes like this, click on the education tab on the Vetfolio website. As always, we'd love to hear your input on this talk as well as ideas for topics you'd like to hear from us in the future. Feel free to reach out to me at dvm at vetfolio.com. You can also visit my Facebook page at Dr. Cassie DVM and you can find me on LinkedIn. And remember, if one animal is better off because of you today, it's a great day.